Well, what a joy it is to, um, well, to even think back about the Lord's guidance and leadership and individual members in this congregation. As we just shared in the previous hour, if you were with us during the Sunday school hour, we shared many thanksgivings to the Lord about the way that he has worked in the lives of folks within this body. And it was that we could have gone on. The, the bell rang and we had to go. But uh, it, was, um, it was so rich and so special uh, to be able to hear from so many of you about how the Lord has worked. And the pains are just one beautiful testimony in that regard. But uh, let me just say a word of thanks to you as a congregation for loving each other well. For loving each other well. That came through over and over again. And when I say it that way, I mean to say thanks to God for giving you the grace for loving each other well. That's what I mean, that God is at work in our midst. More of this, I pray, more of this. Believe it or not, we're at the end of the book of Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 50 this morning. If you have your Bibles, you might turn there. Genesis chapter 50. For those of you who may be visiting with us for the first time this morning, we have been in a long series in the book of Genesis and we find ourselves today at the very final passage in this marvelous book. And in many ways, the key to understanding not just the book of Genesis and not just the story of, of Joseph, but actually the, the story of the whole Bible and the story of our lives. And I think in many ways, this passage, that Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 15 and extending to verse 26, the end of the book, is a bit of a capsule of uh, what our hearts need to hear every single week as we gather in the presence of the Lord and to help us better understand how he is at work and to give us a reason for thanksgiving. And so open up your hearts in just that way as we look attentively to God's word now, beginning in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said... It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that, he did to, that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of your servants of, the God, of God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you. And bring you up from this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. 
Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven now, having heard your word read in the presence of your people and with hearts that are poised to hear from you from this word, I would ask for a pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon us as your people right now. You would open up our hearts to receive the word of God implanted and that it would be to us as a seed, that it would be planted in our hearts in fallow ground and that it would grow and it would bear much fruit to the glory of your name and that we as your people would grow from one degree of glory to the next as we come to more increasingly commune with you, having met with you now. In this, your word, hear this prayer, I'd ask it in Christ's name, amen. Well, it is quite clear that if you're looking over the whole of the book of Genesis, that something has gone wrong. When the book of Genesis begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth, and it concludes with, and they put him in a coffin in Egypt. If you're, if you're the type of person who usually reads the end of a book to know whether you should read the whole book, um, you would know at the end of this book that something has gone wrong, that we were made for life. We were made for eternal communion with the Lord. And the fact that the final line is, and they put him in a coffin in Egypt, tells you that something has gone wrong in the midst of Genesis, that the fall has happened, that wickedness and evil has run amok in the world, and indeed, maybe most deeply of all the characters uh, in the book of Genesis, we might argue that the evil has come most profoundly in the life of this man that we've been studying together for weeks, even Joseph himself. As we look at this passage together, I want to reflect, of course, on the story of Joseph itself, and I want to reflect on the story of the Bible and all of the ways that God is communicating to us as people, and I want to consider deeply the reflections of what we see from this passage into the life of Christ that makes an application into every single life that's here in this room. But I want to start by looking at these brothers a bit in this passage, and I want to do it under a heading a heading that I'm going to call the paranoia of payback. (laughs) The paranoia of payback. (laughs) Do you notice in this passage that these brothers, who we want to look at for just a few minutes together, these these brothers are concerned about payback. And this payback has caused them to become paranoid, very, very deeply concerned. They're in those opening passages as they hear that Jacob, their father has died, has been laid down with his fathers. Now that he was dead, their mind begins to turn a little bit. They begin to question. They begin to wonder, what is this now going to mean for us? Is Joseph, the one that we've sold into slavery so many years ago, the one that we treated so poorly, the one who is now in charge and in charge of our lives, 
Now that the covering of our father is gone, now that the patriarch has passed on, is it possible that he's just been waiting like a lion in tall grass to pounce on us now once dad has died and really give us that which we deserve? Is he going to now pay us back? Now, when you hear that, maybe you can recognize the fact that in your own family or in other families that you know of, things do sometimes change when a patriarch dies. When a grandfather or a grandmother might pass away and maybe they were the glue or the kind of the magnetic force that drew the family together. And maybe you would typically get together on Thanksgiving and now maybe you typically don't get together with those family members because a patriarch has died. Sometimes relationships shift in the midst of the loss of particularly an aged loved one. It's possible that there's some reasoning that's along those lines as these men begin to be worried about how now will Joseph relate to us given the death of our father. But the fact is, when you look at Joseph, and they've now been in Egypt for 17 years, since Genesis 45, when he first revealed himself to them, to Genesis 50, 17 years has passed, and all we've seen from Joseph is that he is full of generosity and kindness and acceptance and of love to his brothers who have treated him very, very poorly. In fact, when you look back at Genesis chapter 45, which is where he first revealed himself uh, to his brothers, he said in that passage, do not be distressed. Notice how he speaks to them here in this passage, do not fear. Joseph has not changed his tune. His character from the very beginning has been one of love. It's been one of care. But all of that being as it were, these men have now taken it upon themselves to imagine the worst. They've begun to think, how poorly can this possibly go? We need to have a contingency plan. We, we need to have other, other positions in place in order to protect ourselves from the potentially violent Joseph because he's shown himself to be very violent. No, they've shown themselves to be violent. And in fact, maybe it's a tipping of their own mind the, the way that they might respond if they were in this situation. <laughs> Though it's not any way that we've seen out of Joseph. Maybe this is actually more of a glimpse into the internal operations of these brothers because they might leverage the power in such a way as to abuse the, the one that had done wrong to them. But that's not been the spirit of Joseph at all. But this fear becomes to them a kind of paranoia. You know this experience, right? When you begin to obsess on something, uh, some fear arises within you. Maybe the, the, the threat you hear from corporate that job cuts are coming down the line and, and you're uh, potentially in your division uh, going to have a downsizing. And immediately, in, in like a split second, you in your mind are fired without money, going to be bankrupt, and begging on the streets of Nashville. Like, just like that. Have you ever done that? You ever obsessed in that way? Some of you are like, that's my normal life. That's what I do every day. That's, that's how I live. You're always in worst case scenario. Even when most people would look at you and they came alongside you and would say, that's irrational. You have become paranoid. You're imagining things that aren't necessarily there. You're borrowing trouble from something that you're not even sure trouble's going to come. 
In the context of this passage, we see that they are eaten up with paranoia, and their paranoia has to do with they're afraid they're going to get, if we can put it this way, they're going to get what they deserve. That he's going to pay us back. That's the language of the text. To, to be paid back means that there's a debt and there needs to be some justice, some, some equity that's brought in this relationship. And the way that they see it, at this point, the grievances that they've committed against Joseph are still on their account. And maybe this is the time that Joseph is going to use his power in order to levy a kind of vengeance against them and to potentially destroy their lives. This paranoia, as maybe is the case for some of you, what happens in the midst of the text? Well, guess what? Paranoia makes plans. Have you noticed this? Paranoia makes plans. You can be all eaten up with fear and it's not going to keep you from doing dumb things and coming up with plans. So what do they say? Now that he might kill us because he is shown to be so violent in these 17 years and so against us, and now that our father has died... We are going to now send a messenger. We're not even going to go see him. We're going to go send a messenger who's going to go in and say, hey, listen, right before dad died, he came to us and gave us one command. That's right. It's an imperative. So we're just following his commands. So we're coming in and we want to tell you that he said, hey, go ahead and forgive us for everything we did wrong. That's just what dad said. Now, I don't know when we read that in the midst of the text, were you buying it? Me neither. And actually, I couldn't find a commentator that bought it either. This is what paranoia does. It makes up stuff. Right? Because that fear is an imagining already. And so now you imagine, and even this point, they begin to live, which is something they've been accustomed to. They begin living a lie. Old habits die hard, don't they? What do I mean they've been living a lie? Well, you know, they're accustomed to living a lie. You remember when they sold Joseph into slavery back in Genesis chapter 37, they took his coat of many colors, they ripped it up as if a wild animal had, had, had attacked him. They dipped it in goat's blood and they brought it back to their father and they lied about what happened. And for decades, they lived by that lie. Old habits die hard. They're back in that sense of, of exposure, of unprotectedness, and they come up with a plan. It's a lie. It's a, it's a falsity. It's a report in order to try to protect themselves. Actually, let me put it in a language that will resonate. It's a self-salvation project. It's a we will come up with our plan on our own terms to save ourselves. We feel vulnerable. We feel exposed. We know we deserve payback. So we're going to come up with a plan to protect ourselves. Notice how it's all about self. And it's full of fear. Sound familiar? It's like a lot of our lives, isn't it? This is the way that we often operate. Maybe some of us are even getting anxious about Thanksgiving this next week as we gather with family and we're wondering, our uncle might kill us this year. I mean, like, you know, what's going to happen? We need to have a contingency plan as we get with, you know, you know Uncle Eddie at Thanksgiving. It's going to be rough. You know, that kind of, that kind of most. Some of us have that story and the reality of that. And maybe there's anxieties and paranoia and plans that go along with that paranoia as we begin to move forward into the following week. Now, the question, when you ever see that happening in you, you need to be asking questions of your heart. 
You need to be asking questions of your heart. Heart, why are you afraid? What are you afraid of? That's really what we should be doing when we actually look at the text and see the fear that's before us here. And we could say very simply, it would be the vulnerability they feel, right? It's the exposed, the unprotected. Dad's died, now we're out here many, many hundreds of miles away in a foreign country called Egypt where the brother who we did really wrong is really powerful and can destroy us. I'm very scared. That's the summary, vulnerability. But there's something deeper going on in the text. It's not just vulnerability. It's not just the unprotected and the exposure. You know what's underneath that sense of vulnerability, of exposure and unprotectedness? The fear of payback. What does that tell you? They have a guilty conscience. That's what's underneath it. There's a moral issue. That's at the core of this text. There's a guilty conscience that's here. Notice the way they describe what they did. They said it was a transgression. It was a sin. It was evil. They're using some of the weightiest words that the Old Testament has to describe their actions toward their brother Joseph. Now we've never, if you go back and look through all the chapters from chapter 37 to 50 in the story of Joseph, you know what we will find? The brothers never use this kind of language about what they did. We've never heard them actually describe what they did in these terms. We've seen Joseph's kindness towards them. We've seen him um, interpret it providentially and spiritually about God's work in and through the wickedness and evil. We've seen all of that. We've seen Joseph's charity. We've seen his compassion and care for them. You know what we haven't seen from them? We haven't seen a real clear confession we haven't seen a real clear confession. And, and, in, and in this passage, what we're beginning to see is underneath that sense of exposure and unprotectedness is a guilty conscience, a weighty conscience that things are not yet right with them. So as we see this, this paranoia of payback, some of us, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, and this would go for those of you maybe exploring the claims of Christianity for the first time, Maybe unsure if you know Christ here today, but you have this underlying sense that you're guilty, something's wrong, and you're a bit afraid that there's a hammer that's going to come down on your head at some given point in time. If you know that experience, listen, you're among friends in this room. Others of us know those, those felt experiences. But even for believers in this room, Christians, you know what it's like to inhabit again that old way of thinking that there's still something that needs to be paid back to you, that you still owe something, that, that you need to do or, or make right to really be okay with, with God or okay in, in life, to have the assurance that, that everything's going to be all right the, time, the day that you close your eyes for the very last time on this earthly plane. Some of us know um, that, that sense and, and that feeling. And there's something, maybe even uh, that guilty conscience kind of rises up within you. Last week as we were talking about the end-of-life decisions and issues right here in the chapel for our Cornerstone Forum in all the literature and reading on end-of-life decisions and, and how to walk through them medically but also uh, physically, uh, there was lots of discussion on how to walk through the end-of-life spiritually and how often regret or a sense of things not being right come back with those who are lying in a hospital bed that they're probably never going to get out of. That sense that, oh no, the doom the dread, 
begins to come down. That sense of paranoia over now the payback for what it is that I've done wrong, it's coming. I think we have to, if we're going to understand this passage well, we have to appreciate the depth of what's going on in the hearts of these brothers as they come up with this plan and as they're eaten up with this imaginative fear about what Joseph is going to do. But the second thing I want to talk to you about in this passage is the purpose that brings peace. Okay, how do we get out of this? This pattern of anxiety and imagination and paranoia and the plans that arise from it that are harried and stressful and are unhelpful. <laughs> now, how do we break the pattern of that? And I think actually Joseph shows us in a beautiful way in this passage. So secondly, we're going to look at the purpose that brings peace. And I want you to notice the humility of Joseph here because this is really where it starts. In verse 20, he says to them, do not fear Am I in the place of God? Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? Now, if you're one of the brothers, if you can be in the shoes of the brothers for just a second, you might be tempted to say, well, you're about as close to it as I've found so far. You're the second in charge and the greatest nation in the world at the time. You can do anything you want to do. You could, you could be, it could be off with my head. I mean, right now, if you so chose. And so I'm feeling pretty, this is judgment seat moment uh, for me in, in the midst of this. And, and so it would be very easy for Joseph to exploit that. It's the very opposite of what Joseph does. Do not fear. Brothers, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? Notice how very humble Joseph is in his response to them. Notice how delineating and distinguishing he is about the power that's been delegated to him and the authority that he possesses by the hand of God, but that he is, he is a man who operates under power and authority. He is merely a representative of his God and of his Lord. And yet in this context about what they're fearful, they're fearful of payback. And he's saying, payback is not mine to give. Payback is not from me to enact. And some of you may be thinking, well, Joseph, it, it would kind of seem like it would be yours to enact because they did the things wrong to you. And Joseph's response to you would be, no, not really. Sin is not primarily a problem horizontally between man and man or man and woman or woman and woman. Sin is an issue that's before Almighty God. It's first and foremost an issue against God. You see the wisdom of Joseph here. The humility of Joseph to say, I'm not in the seat of God. But the wisdom of Joseph to say, listen, payback is not something that I've been called to do. It's not my responsibility. It's God's responsibility. Now, here's where the wisdom comes in. What is he doing when he says that? Well, you can imagine in that moment as the brothers are hearing from him and they're thinking to themselves, now wait, we did wrong to you, but when you say, am I in the place of God, you're saying to us, we need to look higher than you. We need to look higher than you. We've been fearful of what he says we shouldn't be fearful of. Now, hear me on this. Is Joseph saying they shouldn't be fearful? Not necessarily. Joseph is saying, shouldn't be fearful of me. 
Am I in the place of God? Meaning to say, if I were God, I might understand your paranoia. I might understand. Don't fear though. And I'm not in the place of God. There is a fear that you should fear. There is a God who will bring all sin to judgment. I'm just not him. You don't need to fear. Don't need to fear around me. Notice the wisdom of that. What is he doing? He's pointing them to God. He's pointing them, and in many ways, if we could put it this way, he's saying to them, listen, your, your struggle, your paranoia, your plans to try to protect yourself with me, um, I'm not your concern. You need to go higher. You need to talk to someone other than me. You've got business to do with God. You've got business to do with God. It's incredible wisdom with Joseph here. And in fact, it reflects in so many ways. It reflects on the very passage of Matthew chapter 10 when Jesus is speaking to those who are before him. And he says, hey, listen, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Joseph can kill the body. He could do that. He had the power and authority to do that. Jesus says, don't be afraid of those kind. Be afraid of those who can kill the body and soul and cast them into hell. There's only one person that could do that. There's only one person that can do that. Joseph is saying, if you want to get right, as it were, with me, and you want to be alleviated of a guilty conscience, and you want to bed down the paranoia of your mind and its imaginings, let me tell you, you're going to have to deal with the guilty conscience. Friends, how many times have you experienced something where you've, you've done something, some sin in secret, let's say, but your, your mind begins to trigger? Oh, maybe so-and-so could discover it. And before no, you're obsessed about it. You begin to wonder, well, what if they do find out? What would happen? Well, this would happen. And then if, if that would happen, then, then that's going to happen. And then, then we better come up with a plan. And you go into a cover plan. You go into a self-salvation plan. Rather than what is actually the biblical process, which is to go into an uncover plan. It's called confession. In an uncover plan, bring it out into the open. Bring it out before the Lord. Bring it out before him and let him know where it is that you are. And you're thinking to yourself, well, now Nate, you just told me he was a judge, that I should be afraid of him. And now you're telling me that I'm supposed to uncover it in the midst of him. Well, you can pick one or the other, but you can't have both. If you're thinking that, you're on the right track. You're on the right track. We're actually in the midst of that crucible in this passage is we must uncover to the one who has the ability to bring what we're going to uncover to ultimate judgment, to do ultimate payback, as it were. So how does this work? Well, this has to do with the pathway that leads to peace. This has to do with the purposes of God. What does Joseph tell us in this passage? He's discerned something. He's discerned something. What is it that he's discerned? Well, look at Genesis 50 verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive just as they are today. Now, as he has just brought them into the presence of the Lord by saying, do not fear, am, am I God who's before you? He now says, let me tell you a little more about this God. He has taken 
the worst that you've done and he has used it as a part of his salvation plan for the whole of the world. You should go to him. I have real confidence that if you go to him in confession and you humble yourselves before him, because I know something about him. He's been known to take the worst that we have and turn it into the best things imaginable. It's an, it's an incredible statement from Joseph. He took what you did to me that was evil and he has turned it into a salvation plan. You, Abandon your self-salvation lies about what dad said on his deathbed. You think he would have spoken to you? He would have spoken to me about it if he had had a concern, but of course he didn't. The trick is up, but the problem is exposed. You need to go higher. You need to go higher to the one who's been known to take guilty consciences and make them clean and wash them as white as snow. That's where you need to go. Now, if you can see how Joseph is really pressing into them and raising those kinds of questions, he's not just saying, think of the irony of this. He's not just saying, hey, listen, God took what you did and generally he did a really great thing for the world. Like a lot of people got food that would not have gotten food and I've come into power and he's using himself to bear witness in and through me. He's not just generally... This is what he's actually saying. If we, can, if we can be the brothers for a second and put you in the text. He's saying, you who did evil against me and treated me as if I was dead to you, God has raised me up to such a point and given me the resources in order in the moment that you were about to die of starvation, he saved you. He saved you. Do you have you been thinking all this while that, that he's been after you to smash you? Or have you allowed your guilty conscience to become so consumed in thinking that I've been absorbed with revenge, nursing a grudge against you, that I'm waiting to smash you like a little bug as soon as dad is gone? I've been looking at this incredible narrative that he's been telling through the ups and downs and the twists and turns of my life. And I'll admit to you, many of the episodes made no sense whatsoever to me. I have an incredible dream that one day I'm going to be a ruler and all of you are going to bow down to me. And the next day you're selling me into slavery to Ishmaelites and I end up in Egypt. And then as I begin to work my way up the ranks, Potiphar's wife comes, accuses me of something that I didn't do, and I end up in prison for a decade. There were times in my life where it didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. But now as I stand back and you're before me with a guilty conscience thinking I'm going to crush you, when in fact God has been saying to you, I'm saving you. That's what he's been saying to you. He raised me up to save you, not just generally people, but you. You would have died if I wasn't in this role. Don't you see he's been taking the worst that you've possibly done and he has turned it into that which would save you. Now, take your guilty conscience to him. <laughs> Don't you think he'll know what to do with it? Don't you think he'll have the resources to deal with it? You know, that really is the story of the gospel, isn't it? 
The story of the gospel is a whole lot of people over a whole lot of span of history who have intended it for evil. In fact, it started that way in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they would surely die. In that moment, the reality of intending for evil, God in the very next verses are saying to us, but there's going to come a day when the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent and I'm going to rescue you from all of your evil intents. Do you see, you intend things all the time for evil, but my will is stronger than yours, and I'm even going to take the evil that you do, and I'm going to turn it into something that is for good. Genesis 50 verse 20 has been regularly called the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. That God is working all things together for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Now listen to me. That verse does not say, your life is going to go splendidly well at every turn. Don't hear that. Don't misunderstand. If that were the case, if, if, if life going splendidly well was the evidence of God's favor and kindness towards us at all times, Jesus would have had the worst favor imaginable. Just read your Bible. The suffering that God is putting us through, the challenges and the trials that we face, in the moment may seem like insanity, may seem complete loose end. But he is working them all together for a moment at which we will be able to say at the end of time, in all of the threads of your life that are now untied, be able to look into history with the lens of Christ and be able to say, he meant it for good. He meant it for good. He did it all right. He did everything as it was supposed to be. You see, that's exactly the message that Peter preaches in Acts chapter 4. When Peter, who is getting it from all, everybody around him, being threatened, his life, being, being threatened with imprisonment, Peter, <laughs> he begins to pray with John and the others who are around him about the sovereign Lord who's in control of the universe. And he says, listen, oh holy God, your servant, whom the world has been against, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and your people Israel. Now, by naming those four, he was actually, doing, he was actually naming everybody in the world. Jews, Gentiles, those who are low and those who are high. He was naming everybody in the world. Everybody in the world, it has seemed against you, but you, through them, have been accomplishing your predetermined and perfect plan. But you, through them, have been accomplishing your predetermined and perfect plan. You have been using what they have meant for evil. You are using it for good. You're accomplishing your end and your purposes. Now listen, you know that that's going to be true because listen, it wasn't Herod who just mocked Jesus and threw that robe on him or Pontius Pilate who kind of avoided doing what was right with regards to justice in the situation or it wasn't just the, the Jews that cried out crucify him or the Romans that nailed the nails into his hands and his feet. What really held Jesus on the cross all of your sin and my sin together. All the things that we intended for evil. That's what held him to the cross. 
And in the moment where the greatest evil was happening to the Son of God, God was saying, I mean it for good. I mean it for good. That's actually the story of the gospel itself. It's going to be the story that is your life, whether you know it or believe it or not. If you're in Christ today, that is the end of our story. God means it for good. And remarkably, when Joseph says, listen, I know you're worried about payback, but I'm not in the position of God. God says to us in Romans chapter 12, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. But I was reading that this week. And I, thought, I thought, well, that's true. Vengeance is God's. Justice is God's to serve. It's not ours to serve in the ultimate spiritual sense. But it's more than just vengeance is God's responsibility. The vengeance that God has rightfully against us becomes his, mine. He takes it. The vengeance that's rightfully ours, the payback that we feared, he received on our behalf. He stepped in our place as our advocate and our substitute. And he received all of the judgment for our sin. The vengeance literally is mine, says God. He is taking it. He is taking it on. And the reality is there's nothing left to pay. There's no debt if you're in Christ that you owe. If you are walking around thinking God here is is doing something in my life and he's after some evil that I've, that I've done and he's out to curse me, then you have, you're missing the whole message of the Bible. Now, does God discipline his people? Yes, the writer of Hebrews tells us he disciplines those whom he loves. He chastises us and cares for us, but he doesn't do it out of anger. He does it as a loving parent, does it towards a child in order that they may be shaped and fashioned after his likeness in order that we might know the eternal joy that he has created us for in the keeping of the law and in the following of his will. It's in his kindness that he does these things. He brings these things into our life. I mean, it, just as we heard from Mel and from Mike this morning, that in the midst of their pain of waiting and wondering if the Lord was ever going to do, that was, as Mel said to us a second ago, the waiting was where God was doing his best work. We, we love Ella. We're so glad she's here. But as I look back on it, wow, the work he was doing in the waiting. In, in the moments where Joseph is being thrown in the pit or he's in the prison and sold into slavery, in the moments where false accusations are coming, in the moments where the trials are coming, that's where God is doing his best work. How do we know that? Because his best work is the cross. And when the worst work is being done, evil intentioned by men and even the evil one himself, God is saving the world and redeeming for himself a people. Friends, as we go into Thanksgiving, <laughs> let me ask you, do you have a reason to be thankful? Do you have a reason to be thankful? Is it more than just the turkey and the gravy? Is it more that you've just made it another year? That you've got, you've got a pretty good situation. The Lord's taking care of you. Does it go deep enough that in the sufferings of your life, you can trace them to the purposes of God and you can share them with a heart that's been captured by his grace and you can begin to realize that your thanksgiving isn't worldly in nature, it's heavenly in nature. Because there's nothing in this world that could be taken away from you. 
to take away the thanksgiving that has been given to you in Christ. Give thanks for God in all circumstances. For this is the will of God for you, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That now you see in part, but one day in the future you will see in full. That this light and momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. Let this thanksgiving not be one merely of football and feasting. Let this be one that's about the faithful Savior who is reconciling all things to himself. Father in heaven, we would ask you now to write these truths on the tablet of our heart and give us with joy and with love this thanksgiving, a heart full of gratitude for the payment has been paid. There is no more debt. Jesus paid it all. Now, with joy, all to him I owe. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.